Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. With me once again is my partner in crime here for the podcast, retired Navy Captain, Intel Officer Extraordinaire, Bill Hamlet, who is the Deputy Editor-in-Chief for Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So, we, uh, Ward, i gotta, I got to correct some... this because we're way out of balance because nine times out of ten you introduce me and you give me a nice introduction and people get to know who I am. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people uh, on the podcast have only heard you be introduced a couple times. And, uh, I, you know, I want, I want our listeners to know that Ward Carroll, Director of Outreach at the Naval uh, Institute, uh, retired Navy commander, F-14 uh, Rio, and uh, author of uh, three very successful books about the Navy and about naval aviation, starting with Punk's War, published in 2001, and then Punk's Wing and Punk's Fight. So uh, great books that are much talked about in ready rooms around the fleet and uh, uh, were, were read pretty widely. Well, thank you, Bill. That's a very nice intro. So three very successful books and two relatively unsuccessful books, which is... Why I still have a day job, right? This glorious thing about being an author, which is kind of a form of entrepreneurship, right? So we'll be talking to Colin about, about um, you know, it's not as easy as it looks and or it's not as easy as when you're in the fleet and you're talking to the other guys about what you're going to do maybe when you get out, that sort of thing. So we look forward to hearing some of those details from Colin, who's, uh, you know, knows intimately the, the goods and others associated with uh, trying to create your own business. Um, so... What's been happening uh, in the, the fleet that uh, we might want to chat about before we uh, turn to Colin? Uh, anything uh, that's percolating in, in the, the periodical side of the house or anything that... Uh, yeah, so a couple of things. It's 28 February, which means that the March issue of Proceedings has uh, probably uh, gotten into most of our listeners' uh, mailboxes through U.S. Mail uh, today or tomorrow, and we will be uh, putting that... Uh, online on our website uh, later today. So uh, people will be able to access the March issue of Proceedings uh, online uh, this afternoon or to, or later tonight. Uh, and we've got a, a number of great articles. It's the International Navy's issue. So every year for over 30 years now, the March issue of Proceedings has been the international-focused uh, issue. We have the Commanders Respond uh, which is about uh, we every year we send a, a letter out to the CNOs or the, the chiefs of the navies around the world, uh, every navy, uh, you know, whether they're friend, foe, uh, ally, or, or, uh, uh, or other. Um, and we ask the chiefs of the navies uh, to tell us uh, what's on their mind and answer a particular question that we send out. Uh, and this year we had about uh, 20 chiefs of navy from around the world, so... Uh, it's you know pretty often that we get uh, most of our NATO allies that that answer up. Um, we also uh, have uh, some nice inputs from um, navies, including uh, Brazil, uh, Japan, uh, Thailand. Uh, we have uh, Sri Lanka this year for the first time, uh, and it's interesting to you know to hear what the the chiefs of navies around the world what they're focused on, what they think their own. We asked them this year what is. Uh, uh, your best practice in your Navy, because, uh, you know, international maritime security is kind of a team sport. It's, you know, no, no country can go it alone. Uh, and so, you know, as the U.S. Navy, you know, partners or, or uh, navies around the world or regionally partner with each other, you know, we ask the chiefs of Navy to tell us what their uh, best practice, what, what do they think they're best at. Uh, and so the answers are, are, you know, pretty interesting. One, one of, that uh, stands out to me is... Uh, uh, the uh, the Dutch Navy 
uh, came back and, and um, they do a lot of uh, mine warfare in, in NATO. Uh, mine warfare is very much a, a team sport. And uh, we've asked a lot of our NATO partners to take that role on. Uh, the Dutch uh, came back with uh, something that they did where they uh, decommissioned their minesweepers, but they put a, a, a mobile sort of uh, connex box command center for mine warfare uh, that they can um, lift onto or, or off any combatant and even onto merchant ships. So they're using that uh, that mobile command platform for mine warfare, uh, and they offered that up as uh, as a best practice. So anyway, the uh, commanders respond, international navies issue. We've got uh, some pieces written by the chief of the French Navy, um, and uh, just uh, you know, uh, a smattering of, of great stuff uh, from around the world. Um, so the um, there's some other stuff going on. Uh, we want to. Uh, also mention that the new issue of Naval History, which I'm showing right here on Facebook Live, is on the streets. As always, great stuff. Um, history comes alive in the pages of Naval History. So if you're not a subscriber, uh, you might want to check that out, and you can uh, find out what the subscriptions rates are at usna.org. Fantastic magazine. So along with proceedings, the new issue of Naval History is on the streets. Also, some cool headlines happening at our uh, news arm, USNI News. Sam Legrone and Megan, and uh, and Ben. Uh, those those folks are always out there finding out what's going on day to day. And uh, the, there's a story right now on the in their headlines about some uh, uh, new folks getting uh, uh, in in new positions around the fleet. Particularly, there's a new Fleet Forces Command. Coming in, who uh, Admiral uh, Vice Admiral Christopher Grady is leaving Sixth Fleet. And he's going to take over for Admiral Davidson. Admiral Davidson is uh, on the short list to be PACOM, uh, which is a very uh, interesting development. And uh, there's also uh, the um, Deputy of Strategic Command, Vice Admiral Charles Richard, has been tapped to lead the Navy's submarine forces, and he'll uh, relieve Vice Admiral Joseph to follow in that role. Uh, down at the Syscom na- at uh, NAVAIR, P-E-O-T, which is the Program Executive Officer for Tactical Aircraft, Rear Admiral Mike Moran has been selected to succeed Vice Admiral Dave Johnson as the Principal Military Deputy for the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research Development and Acquisition. That's uh, U.S. Or RDA. ASNRDA is what that uh, acronym is for those uh, inside baseball. And then the last one is Rear Admiral Timothy J. White, currently serving as the commander of national of the Cyber National Mission Force at U.S. Cyber Command, will succeed Vice Admiral Michael Gilday as the commander commander of uh, what we call 10th Fleet, which is the Fleet Cyber Command, um, a new fleet uh, that is tackling the emerging cyber threat. So that's a very, very important uh, job in, uh, in the, this day and age, as we know. So... We entreat uh, all the listeners to check out USNI News on a daily basis. If you're not subscribed to the newsletter, you should be. It hits my inbox. It's the first thing I look at every morning. Yep, you can subscribe. It comes in for free, usually four or five stories a day. They have an RSS feed. Uh, you can get it, uh, the, the daily feed, or you can also get a weekly feed. And, uh, yeah, it's just the facts, man, what's happening in the Navy, uh, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard. Uh, and it's uh, it's known for, you know, straight down the middle, this is what's going on. Roger that. So why don't we uh, bring Colin into the, the conversation here? Yeah, so our guest today is Commander Colin Supko, uh, Navy SEAL, uh, Navy Reservist, and, uh, and a 
uh, CEO, uh, entrepreneur, startup uh, guy uh, out in California. He's uh, had a couple different companies that he's uh, uh, gotten uh, started. And he's a proceedings author who's written two pieces for us uh, for proceedings today. Uh, in the last, uh, we, we published one at the end of uh, January. We published the second one uh, just yesterday. Uh, and the topic of his uh, ongoing sort of series of, of articles is about innovation within DOD and the fact that, uh, you know, structurally, uh, DOD is, uh, is kind of a, it's a behemoth. And for startup companies, for that, you know, Silicon Valley mindset, uh, it's really difficult to do business. And so as a result of that, uh, DOD is losing out on a lot of innovation technology and innovation creativity that exists in, a, uh, in an economic sphere that, uh, that DOD is not well tapped into. So, uh, Colin, welcome to the, to the podcast. I understand you're joining us from Norfolk today. I sure am. Uh, I appreciate you having me on today. So let's talk about, first off, what it was you did uh, during your first go-around in, in the Navy with the teams. Give us a basic bio. So I was super fortunate to get to work with some of the greatest warriors on the planet. Uh, and in that capacity, uh, I did three combat tours to Iraq. Uh, first tour, uh, I spent a lot of time in Baghdad. And then when we took the city of Fallujah for Phantom Fury, I was uh, fortunate to get to lead a uh, team of SEAL snipers. Uh, during that combat action. Uh, during my second tour as platoon commander, uh, I helped lead uh, the fight against the insurgents in the Ramadi-Fallujah corridor, uh, and we were stationed at Ahabaniya. And then in my third tour, I was the I was a task unit commander uh, in charge of all the special operations forces working in western Iraq, uh, and then got the opportunity uh, as the crisis response element commander for the Middle East uh, to go do some counter-piracy operations off of Somalia. So, super fortunate career. Um, very blessed to have worked with some of the, the best warriors that the country has to offer. So, the decision to stay in or get out is is a very personal one, and it's different for all of us. And uh, what what was your calculus, and, and how did you uh, decide to get out? So, I couldn't agree more, Ward. It was... Uh, it was some long, long nights and long days, uh, and to come to Jesus moment about uh, who I wanted to be and uh, the best way to become that person. And for me, having come off of three back-to-back combat deployments, um, I felt like I got a really good insight into warfare and combat, uh, and and I felt that I was lacking uh, with some of the geopolitical and uh, economic realities that we face within combat. Um, and that is that at, at the very highest levels, uh, economic politics uh, plays massive role into combat operations. Uh, and so for me, the decision um, was made easier when I was accepted uh, into Stanford Business School. Um, and that really set a path for me that I could see as uh teaching me about business and uh, what I wanted to do from an entrepreneurial standpoint uh, to have it come to reality. So the thing about that choice is there is no pipeline, right? So um, let's say somebody's listening to the podcast and they're getting towards the end of their, uh, you know, EAOS or their, their time, their, their time of obligated services as an officer. And 
they've been reading Fast Company or they went to a Bunker Labs event and they're like, I, that's what I want to do, right? Um, so what are the some of the first basic prep steps that you would recommend to somebody who maybe thinks that they want to get into the world of startups and entrepreneurial uh, ventures? Uh, that's a great question. I would say the first uh, thing that any aspiring entrepreneur uh, should do is, is look in the mirror and ask themselves about risk tolerance. Ask themselves about uh, the responsibilities they have to, to family, uh, to friends, and realize that choosing the entrepreneurial path is the path of greatest risk. And I think it's important to understand those risks before making a decision of dedicating your life, uh, your money, your resources, your emotions uh, into any business venture uh, that may or may, mo- may or may not prove to be um, successful. Yeah, so, so and, Colin, and I'll th- the, uh, the, the lifestyle in Silicon Valley is, uh, is known probably among other things for, you know, fail fast, fail often. Uh, so as you said, it, it's risky. Um, you know, did, did you have any failures or what, like, what was the first couple of years like for you as you transitioned out of the teams and into, uh, you know, the startup land out in California? Absolutely. Uh, I had failures and I continue to have failures uh, every day. I think it's important to understand that when people in Silicon Valley talk about fail fast, fail early, uh, it doesn't mean that if you choose a path uh, or a business model that you believe in, that the first minute of struggle means that you consider that a failure and then you quit. Uh, In Silicon Valley, it revolves more around iteration. So I'm going to iterate as many times, and I can't be afraid to put my my baby, my product, in front of the consumer uh, and really get feedback on that and have the flexibility uh, to quickly make changes and then re-release. In, in that iterative process comes many, many failures. Um, but the reality is that in, in the startup world, Failures can come from from many different angles. Uh, I personally had an original business partner um, who I got along with really well, and we worked together for a good seven months before making the determination to actually create a company and raise capital. And it was at at that moment when real money started to look like it was going to come in on the horizon that things got, he got a little squirrely and didn't like the original arrangement that we came up with and wanted to change things and save you the bloody details, but inevitably uh, it ended up in, in court and I had to separate him for stealing from our company. Uh, and so things Yikes. like that happen all the time. Got it. That's, that's not a, uh, a unique story. You've heard others uh, with similar stories like that, huh? Yes. Unfortunately, uh, that's the case. It's, um, having a startup, having any business partners, it's it's a relationship like any other, and it involves emotions, and it involves fear, and, and risk, and, and all those other things that go into having a relationship. So one of the most important things, besides having a, a sound business model, uh, a sound product that's competitive, is to have a sound uh, team, and uh, it, that's one of the hardest things to build, um, and coming from the SEAL teams where 
it's, it's all about the team and never about the individual. Uh, we have a, a screening process that builds individuals to then slide into those teams with a shared set of values, a shared culture, and that's just something that's difficult to find uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, among the basics that that folks need to need to have, would you say that uh, uh, not just a college degree, but an MBA? Maybe it's not required, but is that a, a recommendation you would make to get you s- sort of oriented in a way that that really uh, underwrites your potential for success? So I, I would not say that you have to have a Harvard or Stanford or Warden or any other type of MBA uh, to create a company. I will say that you need to do a lot of writing, and the most important thing is to have self-awareness to your own weaknesses because there are so many things that need to accomplish, need to be accomplished in a startup that you alone will never have the subsequent skill sets to do them all. And so by being self-aware, you're going to be able to go out and hopefully bring other people that bring those, uh, those strengths to bear to cover down on your weaknesses. But it, it absolutely requires a, a passion and a drive for and a belief in what you're building uh, to be successful. So for me, the transition to Stanford out of the Navy was a perfect landing place for me to go from my life in the military to a completely new life, a completely new world. And, and you better believe that Silicon Valley is like a completely different country. <laughs> San Francisco is a completely different country, that's for sure. Um, it is. I mean, the lexicon, the money, the networks that operate there, how those networks operate, uh, it's, it's, it's much smaller than people think it is, especially at the top. Yeah. Interesting. And, and did your time at Stanford Business School expose you to to some of what was happening in Silicon Valley? Was it was it was that MBA program sort of geared towards uh, you know tech startup uh, you know that that end of business? So, with the electives that we had outside of our core classes, uh, I lean towards that, and they have some of the the best electives when it comes to to startups. The one that I took was called Startup Garage, where I first incubated my idea for Patriot List and uh, did gathered the data and went out and talked to potential customers. And all that was great that I could do while I was in school. But it absolutely is the heart. Stanford as an institution is the very heart that makes Silicon Valley uh, pump its technology throughout the rest of the world. Um, it's got some of the, the greatest professors and the greatest minds uh, walking around that campus and just you just can't help but but become a part of it just by being in the gravity of those types of people. So two elements that you've named so far that you've taken from from the SEAL teams to uh, the, the world of startups and entrepreneurship. You mentioned never quit, and I have known you for a year or so, and, and I can say that you really do personify the never quit ethos. Uh, Colin doesn't know how to quit. Um, and, and that's what will see them through. And then part B is, you know, be able to identify and build a, a team. Are there any other things that are sort of fundamental uh, that you've, you've sort of drawn on your military expertise um, to, uh, to make sure that you're oriented properly as you, as you make Patriot List uh, grow? I mean, my time in the teams taught me so much. Uh, but so much of it came down to, 
it's your job as a leader to always make sure that your people are taken care of first. And as a startup founder, uh, you'll find that that's the case. That sometimes it, it means that you don't get paid in order to make payroll to make sure your people get paid. Uh, it, it's to make sure that they know that you were looking out for their best interest because they stopped whatever they're doing in your life to help you build your dream because they believed in it. Uh, and that is that is a really uh, special place to be, and it's not something to be taken for granted. It's, it's definitely never about you. It's about whatever it is you're trying to produce and bring to the world to hopefully make it a better place. And the people you surround yourself uh, are everything. And the second thing is culture. You have to have a shared set of values, uh, a shared culture that everybody is bought into in order to succeed. And it's, it becomes it's easy up front because people buy into the, the value and the dream. Uh, and I think as I've seen some other friends that have grown their businesses and, and you know, they go from 10 to 100 to 250 um, employees, uh, it's a little harder to hold on to that culture. And then you have all the examples of when culture goes bad um, and those are all over the place in Silicon Valley from Uber to others where uh, the culture was was one of fun and excitement but not one that had longevity associated with it well let's let's segue to uh, sort of innovation as a as a concept what I know about vet entrepreneurs is they more more than likely got out of the military because they were frustrated at the pace with which they could effect change. I'm thinking uh, of Chris Michael, the founder of Military.com. I'm thinking of Paul Zoldra, the founder of Duffel Blog, and the guy who was the executive editor for me at um, We Are the Mighty, um, the folks who started Article 15 and Ranger Up, and you know all of Todd Connor at Bunker Labs, you, you know, what I know as a student of the that pedigree and that profile is you guys move at a pace that is not uh, at peace with the way that, that things go in, in the military. So now your proceedings today article talked about how DOD needs to be better at, at innovation. Um, So what are the things that jump out right away as you've attempted to, uh, to plug back into, um, you know the 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 Pentagon with some of the ideas you've had, and how how could the the, the Department of Defense be more entrepreneurial friendly? Um, you know, going forward. So first, uh, I will say that I was I was fortunate to have uh, the Secretary of Defense at Stanford while I was there, and and the opportunity to to get to know him, and uh, we couldn't have a better man uh, at the head of. Uh, of our organization. And he, uh, along with Secretary Carter, uh, spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley. And they made uh, an immediate move with the creation of the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, the Strategic Capabilities Office, uh, and the separation of the Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics into two separate Undersecretary positions. One focused on uh, legacy acquisitions, which is super important um, for what we do in the military, and another one that's focused on the next ridge line and the next few ridge lines out and figuring out how do we 
have a better, um, how do we find a better way in acquisition to acquire new technology early and put it in the warfighter's hands? Um, but I, I would say that the, one of the issues that I've personally seen is that we have many legacy um, acquisition professionals, and they haven't been trained on some of the, the, the new acquisition capability that's out there. Uh, and it, it means that there's, there's a lot of work that goes into it, because obviously Uncle Sam's money is important, and we're not at the point where we're, we're able to, to do what venture capitalists do and pour hundreds of millions of dollars into a product that may disappear um, so I think that there's going to have to be something that uh, that we some way to find a balance between those two realities, and I I discuss it in my article, uh, and, and I would say that one of the most important things that we need to do is to get the right personnel, and, and I believe that some of the people that you were just discussing would have fit into this category, folks that are that are interested in technology, that have some background in technology, that are willing to get off the the track for at least a time period in order to be placed into industry into certain locations in order to be able to provide direct feedback from the ground with the latest and greatest technology that's being invented every single day in some of our technology hubs around the country. Um, and I think until our senior leaders see that as a viable career path for some of their front runners, um, we're going to be we're going to be in trouble. We're always going to be behind the power curve, and we're going to be constrained by some of the military industrial complex companies that are out there that are just legacy contracts with the government, um, but are not necessarily providing the latest and greatest tech to the government. Yeah, because they're so- not they're not garnering the latest and greatest technologists from places like Silicon Valley, Austin, um, Boston, and other locations. Yeah. Colin, your your article, just so our uh, readers know, our listeners know, is uh, it's called this one. The, the second part of it uh, is called Part Two: The Great Divide. A cultural shift is needed, and uh, and as I read it, one of the things that stood out was this point that you make that um, that there's you know in acquisitions people talk about the valley of death. You know, you get this great technology, and then somebody you know at DoD might say, "Wait, well, hey, that's that's cool. We need to have that railgun." Right, but then between the the basic technology, the R and D, and fielding a weapon system, you know, there's a lot of investment that needs to be made, and a lot of engineering, and a lot of, uh, you know, you go years without actually having a product, and and it's in that va- they call it the valley of, valley of death because without a product, without something kind of cool to show, hey, this is really tracking along towards being a, uh, you know, an arrow in the quiver. It's it's subject to being killed, right? Because somebody goes, yeah, geez, that was a neat idea five years ago, but we still don't have, we're still not, you know, driving that particular thing, and so the the sponsor can go away. Somebody's interest dries up. Congress says, hey, you know, you spent a lot of money on this, and we're going to kill it because you're you're not there yet. And and in your article, you mentioned a, a particular place where DoD should make, uh, you know, could could. Um, could put its money in a way that would help to reap results, right? And so you mentioned um, this idea of uh, uh, of being a, an echelon to being a pilot customer, like you get uh, DOD to to provide some funding at um, 
First, you say a seed, uh, early stage seed investments. So at this point, venture capital companies, backed startups, you know, they've got an idea and they know it's a good idea. But at this point, they need a seed investment to keep it going, right? And then later on, you talk about being sort of a pilot customer. And I think that seems to be um, you're, you're identifying places where DOD could uh, infuse money in ways that would shorten or eliminate that valley of death. Have I got that right? It is, because this is going to have to look a lot like a public-private partnership. So I'm a, I'm a tech company, and I, and I try to make it clear in here, seed stage companies are in a, in a fight for their life. They're trying to find customers, because most VCs, depending on the technology, like to wait to see that somebody has product market fit. So I'm technology company A, and I have a great technology. My... My ability to get that in front of the right military people is actually really difficult. It's not an easy thing to do, especially if I have no connection whatsoever with the military. It's a different lexicon. There's uh, different uh, acquisition profiles, and it's, it's really hard to get that technology in front of the right people. But instead of having it at the, at the highest levels, you push that down to an echelon TICOM commander who now has a little bit of money. We're not talking a lot of money. We're talking, you know, ten to, to fifty million dollars, which probably sounds like a lot to some of the listeners. But in, in venture capital money, that's that's you know, Series A type of money. Yeah, and in in shipbuilding money, that's not big money either, right? We're talking about the next frigate being a billion dollars yeah. a copy. They don't leave the house for less than you know ten million dollars. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And so in this case, now you have the ability. For, to, for that S2 to do one of two things. To one, buy an initial grouping of products to say, you know what, I want to buy $500,000 of this product. Well, now as an entrepreneur, if I can go back to the venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road and say, hey, look, we have our initial product out, and, and via our initial product, we got a half a million dollar order from Naval Special Warfare. Well, now a venture capitalist is going to be like, that's pretty amazing. Why don't we turn around and give you $10 million so we can push this uh, technology and get this moving faster because that $500,000 order can quickly turn into a $50 million order if the technology bears fruit. Yeah, and then right you're, now, you're, you're pushing it through that valley of death faster too. Well, right. there's no valley of death right, if, right. If, if you go fast. If you go fast, right. That's right. The right. Thing. That, that, yep. Good point. And, and you have public-private partnerships, so now you're partnering with the venture capital folks who all they want to do is make money. And if you show the government has the capability of being a, a true pilot customer and that starts to bear fruit, they'll, you know, in, in Silicon Valley right now, you're hard-pressed to find a VC who's like, oh, yeah, we want, we want you, Startup X, that we just put $5 million into to pivot towards the government because – the lead times in government sales process are so brutal that they don't want to end their company ends up dying in the valley of death. And yeah. the other thing that we need to do is look at technology that has both private uh, capability and uh, military capability. So we're not we're, now we're talking software as opposed to hardware. But the reality is that the folks that are building the new software out there right now are it, it's the same software 
that's going to be flying some of our drone fleets that are flying the Amazon drone fleet. The same software that's going to be protecting uh, Google is the same software that can be protecting uh, our government system. Yeah, that's a good point. So open architecture allows you to take some of that same code and apply it to, you know, similar things, but with different levels of classification or different, uh, uh, you know, your, your target, instead of being, um, you know, putting a package on somebody's doorstep, it might be putting a bomb in somebody's, you know, back window, right? <laughs> well, I mean, this is, these are the urban legends associated with the, you know, DARPA creating the internet, um, GPS, name the thing that changed modern civilization, and it, was, it probably started as a military application. You know, and, and, and so what Colin's saying is in today's modern, you know, fast-paced digital infrastructure startup environment, DOD is not postured to move through the valley of death, right? So to his point, a VC firm is, is going to very much balk at a public, what he frames as a public-private partnership. Um, so Colin, let's, let's talk about, um, let's personalize it and let's talk about patriot list um as an an example of of you know where where these things uh you know come under challenges and 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 how how you get these things to markets and how this idea could um have uh traction if it if dod recognized its utility so tell us about patriot list I appreciate that. So I created Patriot List. Uh, I'll set the stage. So back in 2004, while I was deployed uh, to Fallujah, like we discussed, uh, we had come out of combat operations, and one of the guys that I was working with had come in after speaking with his wife. Uh, and he was looking a little distraught, and he told me that his wife in San Diego, uh, because they were having the PCS move when he got back from deployment, was trying to sell one of their cars on Craigslist. And she had been robbed at gunpoint um, trying to show her car uh, out of a parking lot uh, to some guy. And he was really distraught about it. And we started talking about why there wasn't a better way for the members of our military to do this thing that so many millions of people do. So many millions of military families utilize um, these marketplaces, uh, even understanding the dangers that are associated with them. And so that really planted a seed for me, uh, and I, uh, I took that seed when I ended up at business school and started to flush out what it would look like to build a, a closed-loop market platform uh, that's very similar to Craigslist and eBay, but where every member had to verify their identity through the Department of Defense and Department of Veteran Affairs. Uh, I thought this would be a very useful tool for... Um, you know, the hundreds of thousands of folks that are PCSing every couple of years and a, a much safer way for military families to be able to buy, sell, and trade with one another or veteran families or federal employees uh, in a much safer and more secure environment. Um, and so that's what I built out. And now I built it out and went immediately to the Pentagon and said, gentlemen, this is what I built, and here's how I think we can team up to provide this service for the members of our military. And they just had a, they had a really hard time wrapping their head around that, that people, as it was, this was a quote from one of the bureaucrats in the Pentagon, 
who never spent a day in uniform, by the way, uh, I don't see why people would want to use this when they can just use Craigslist. I use Craigslist. I've never had a problem. So, so you so, got you got the Indiana Jones. We have top people working on this. Top. Well, top <laughs> it's men. like, did you hear yeah. my story about why I created this, sir? Right. Right. I mean, yeah. because there's right. some there's some danger. There's some, you know. So if you if you're able to look comprehensively about this product, and if you think of it as a value add to being in the service including your families right it's this is these kinds of things add up to be you know benefits of service sure Um, and and and, uh that that we can't get out of the way of of that reality really does drive people out of the military you know and 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 so you know this this is why innovation has always been challenged inside the five-sided wind tunnel, right? Um, and this is why entrepreneurs are generally in the profit and loss world. Um, and why, you know, again, I, I know Chris Michael, you know, very well. He's, he's one of my best friends. And watching him and hearing his stories about, you know, he's a, a P3 guy. Um, and he was just frustrated with the pace that of change. And, and, and he had a bunch of good ideas of how to do the flight schedule more effectively and, other stuff and and it just it, it nothing could take hold you know um so um so where are we colin with with patriot list and and what what are the next steps yeah so patriot list is uh is, is running strong and we're continuing to garner users uh and the next steps uh, for me is i'm gonna be looking to raise another round of funding uh and at this point in time, try to use that money in marketing on the bases, uh, which is a whole other uh, issue when it comes to dealing with uh, the ability to actually market on base. Um, not as not as cost effective as one would hope, uh, and so that's that's what it comes down to for me. It's all about user growth and continuing to get uh, products on the marketplace, which we continue to do, uh, and getting the word out. Uh, as I've found, as I've spoken to uh, many different groups, military groups, when they find out about it, uh, they immediately pull, pull their phones out and download the free app on the iOS and Android app stores and then spend time thanking me or telling me uh, horror stories about uh, using Craigslist or OfferUp or LetGo or some of the other anonymous marketplaces that are out there. And now, even more so, you have the Facebook marketplaces, which have this appearance of being safe because they don't understand that Facebook does nothing to verify the identity of anybody on their platform. Uh, And now they're starting to see the impact. And I mentioned this in my article, the impact that, you know, a a massive group of Russian hackers can have to try to influence the understanding of the political discourse in our own country. And that many times those people are, are targeting our military folks. Uh, making a concerted effort to do that, as I've uh, talked to some friends in the intelligence community. So this is uh, this is all happening. Uh, another anecdotal story, uh, a young sailor that I met today was um, on board a ship where his brand-new uh, E-4 uh, had checked on board, was getting signed off, and went. him and his pregnant wife went to go sell uh, or buy a phone off of Craigslist or off of OfferUp here in Portsmouth. And they pulled up into the situation, 
and it looked sketchy. They tried to drive away, and uh, a group of gentlemen uh, jumped out of their car and shot uh, ten times into their car, uh, hitting him twice, hitting his wife once. Um, what? And there this... was nothing. They still... Holy they... smokes. And wow. They... Yep. And this is, and if you take the time to Google these things, you see that this is happening all the time on these anonymous marketplaces. Um, but pe- because people are unaware that there's something better, especially for our military personnel, uh, it's, it, it continues to happen. So it's a, it's a sad thing. So okay. what, what can the audience do to find out more about Patriot List? You mentioned download the app. Uh, what, what else, what else could, could they do? Absolutely. You can Google Patriot List. Uh, we have the website as well, patriotlist.us, which will allow you to sign up. Uh, all transactions, we're mobile first, so all the transactions happen on the app. Uh, and like I said, the apps are both free, iOS and Android. Uh, and feel free to write me at uh, Colin at PatriotList.us if there's any questions about um, how we operate. Hey, Colin, that's, that's great. Thanks for the uh, the update and you know talking about your article about innovation within DOD, about your experience after leaving the uh, – uh, the Navy and becoming a reservist and going to business school and then and then getting into the startup world and the innovation tech world. I want to come back uh, to your Navy career as a Navy SEAL. Uh, so you are the commanding officer of SEAL Team 17, which is all the West Coast uh, Navy Reserve SEALs. And you said uh, just before we started this that uh, you're in Norfolk uh, getting ready to um, or, or preparing for a, a long in- individual augmentation. You're going to go back to Afghanistan. So just tell our listeners a little bit about what's coming for you this summer in Afghanistan. Uh, so, so that's correct. So I am the commanding officer of the reserve SEALs on the West Coast, uh, and we fall under what SEAL Team 17, which is the active uh, component. Uh, and I owe the, the government my time. I signed up to be a reservist, and it's been uh, a little over four years, and it's my time to, to go, and the community um, asked me to fill this requirement, and so it's my my pleasure to do so. And so it, it, it will be interesting to run my company and do the job that I need to do uh, downrange. I have uh, I have some, some great support uh, at my company, and so hopefully I won't get too many emails because the folks I've left behind to run it are, are going to be crushing it like normal. Yeah, and will that be a, a six month augmentation in uh, Afghanistan or a year? And and where you know where you'll be? Yeah, that's going to be for six months and. Uh, location uh, I won't disclose at this point. Got it. Ooh, very SEAL-like. Yeah, I like that. Definitely, definitely. Well, Godspeed uh, on your uh, deployment, upcoming deployment. Uh, Thanks for all you do leading the West Coast Reserve SEALs. Uh, and for starting Patriot List and, and providing a, uh, a more secure place for military people to, uh, to do some of that, um, uh, you know, marketplace work without, without uh, you know, subjecting themselves to some of the ripoffs that are happening in other, uh, other marketplaces. And uh, so, uh, again, Colin Supko, uh, Commander, Navy Reserve uh, SEAL and uh, CEO of Patriot List which you can find online, and a Naval Academy Class of 99 graduate and uh, a proceedings author. So great having you on the podcast today, Colin, and Godspeed. Uh, thank you both for having me on, and uh, I will get you that third article uh, ASAP. Awesome. <laughs> Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, Colin. Good luck to you going forward. Let's, uh, let's keep in touch. For 
sure will. Thanks, gentlemen. Out here. All right, so that's going to do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. We'll see you next week. Remember, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Hoo-yah. <laughs>